Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast. This is episode 21. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we are proud to present Alison Coward with her Boss Talk from the Europe 2018 conference looking at how finding the right balance between individual expertise and collective effort may be tricky but is possible. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Alison Coward is founder of consulting and facilitation agency Bracket, helping teams in the creative and technology sector to collaborate better and improve their performance. Her client list includes Fortune 500 companies, startups, charities and public institutions. She's a strategist, trainer and workshop facilitator and the author of A Pocket Guide to Effective Workshops. With over 15 years experience of working in, leading and facilitating creative teams, Alison is passionate about finding the perfect balance between creativity and productivity. It's not just enough to hire talented people and hope for the best. Innovation and complex problem solving requires teamwork, so we need to pay attention to how people work together. Building great products means creating the best environment for teams to thrive. In this talk, Alison will share her insights on effective collaboration, the habits of successful teams and principles for designing an outstanding team culture. Happy listening. So, as you can probably guess, I'm a fan of jazz. Anyone else? Oh, a few. Good, good. I thought I might be on my own. Um, that track is a track called You've Got to Have Freedom by an ensemble called Build an Arc. And Build an Arc came together after the events of 9-11. Um, and they were all individual jazz musicians in their own right, but they decided that they wanted to come together to promote a message of peace and love and hope. Um, and, you know... Actually, I never really thought about that connection before I chose the track, but I thought it was a really nice connection into high-performing teams. Um, I know that I'm not the first person to talk about jazz as an analogy for high-performing teams, but for me, that particular example really makes sense in the fact that they were all individually talented, um, they all come together. And when you sort of watch a jazz band, I've actually seen, I think I've seen Building Up play at um, the Barbican, actually. When you um, see each of the individual jazz musicians, they're all in their flow, they're all kind of, you know, doing their own thing, but somehow it all comes together. Um, and they achieve perhaps what we call team flow. Um, I mean, flow is a psychological concept that was um, developed by a Hungarian psychologist. Let me get the name right. I was practicing this all day yesterday. Mahali Sitsen <laughs> Mahalai, I think that's how you say it. My partner's Hungarian and is teaching me. Um, okay, what was it? Csikszent Mihályi, that's it, there you go. Um, he, he developed the concept of flow. Um, and the idea of flow is that when you're, uh, you're working on something and you're so engrossed in a task, you're focusing on it, and you just completely forget about where you are, what you're doing, you lose sense of time and space. Um, and that's kind of where we all generally want to get to with our work. We want to enjoy it. We want to feel kind of happy and engaged in our work. And I guess, for me, I'm really interested in exploring whether we can do that as a team. So what I do at my company, Bracket, is I help teams work better together, and particularly in the area of creativity and innovation. 
And I've been exploring this, this balance between creativity and productivity since I started. Uh, for me, a high-performing team is a team that not only comes up with great ideas, but is also able to deliver them to a high standard as well. So that's what I'm going to be talking to you about um, in my talk. Um, sharing some of my own knowledge and experience of working with teams, bringing in some research and some concepts which, which back that up, and also sharing some examples of teams that you've probably heard of as well. Now, why do we need to think about this? High-performance team seems to be kind of a hot topic at the moment, but teamwork has been around for a long time. It's been around forever. You know, we've always had to work in teams to get work done. Um, but it really is changing, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about teams much more, and um, partly because most of us are doing more of our work in teams. This report from EY says that 90% of work now is done in teams, and it's not just that they're done in teams, um, you know, people are finding most of their work is done in teams, but they're also working across multiple teams as well. They're not just in one, one team. And then even some of the words that we're using to describe teams, fluid, dynamic, dynamic, electric, elastic, um, autonomous, self-managing, small multidisciplinary teams. The, the way that we're describing these teams has changed. Things are moving much faster. We've got the technology to support different ways of working. The demands of our consumers, the demands of the outside world, are meaning these teams don't stay constant. They switch and they change more frequently. Um, we, bring in, we need to bring together small teams of multidisciplinary experts to get work done. And we bring them around a challenge. When that challenge has been solved, then they go off and work on, their, on, on new teams. So, again, the way that we're working is, is much more dynamic. We might work on, with a team and start on a new project, which creates its own dynamic. We might even be part of a team. And when we start on a new project, then a whole new dynamic is in place. So really, we need to have a bit more fluency around what it takes to build great teams and keep them going as well. It's not just enough to focus on the work. We need to think about how we're working together. And more than that, there is no one-size-fits-all. Each of these teams are different. You bring a set of individuals together that are talented in their own right. When they come together, they form a team culture. You've got the dynamic of the project to consider and also the context that they're working in as well. The environment is very different, which means that every team has its own individual challenges and, and problems to address. So some of the principles for teamwork today, the way that teamwork is changing, some of the ways we need to think about teamwork differently. The first thing is we need to think about how we manage teams differently. You know, teams, particularly in the knowledge sector, particularly people, say, that work in the area of creativity, innovation, doing stuff with their brains, coming up with ideas. It's not about management. It's about orchestrating all of that talent and bringing it together. And we take a more of a facilitative approach to leadership. It's also about taking a design approach as well and being intentional about the way that we work together. I think I said in the description, you know, putting people in a room and hoping for the best is not enough. We need to think um, more specifically and more purposefully about how those teams are going to work together. And a design approach works in this way as well. I'll talk a bit about that later. And then we need to think about building team habits. How do we change the behaviour? How do we get to the behaviour that we want? So it's not just about managing a great team. It's not just about designing the behaviour that we want. It's actually thinking, how do we actually get to that behaviour? How do we change the behaviour of the people in the team to actually get there as well? A really great example of this is um, the technology company Asana. So Asana, um, they are 
producers of a team productivity tool. So you probably think that they've got quite a lot of knowledge in how teams work together. But they look at themselves, they look at culture as a product. So they've actually won very recently, I think in 2017, one of the best places to work. Um, they're one of the highly rate, highest rated companies on Glassdoor. And the founders, Justin Rosenstein and Dustin Moskovich, um, they, they call their culture a product. So they think of their culture as something that can be designed, iterated, debugged, tested, in the same way that their, their actual technology product is, is developed as well. I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. So what makes a successful team? Even though we think about the team as a whole, actually for me it's about starting with the individuals. As I said before, when you're bringing together a team, you're bringing together a group of individuals who all have their own skills and expertise and ways of working. So it makes sense to start there, rather than kind of jumping straight into the teamwork. Start with the individual. Think, what is each individual person bringing and how can we make the teamwork based on that? And it, um, so going back to the jazz band, you know, each of the, the, the jazz musicians have got their own uh, skills, um, their own talents, but somehow they've managed to work together seamlessly. Each person has their place in the team, but they work together as a whole to make this amazing piece of music. And this is a bit of a paradox. It's a bit of a balance that we need to find. And it's not, it's not easy, it's tricky. So this is something that Linda Hill talks about in her book, Collective Genius, where she explored all of the characteristics of innovative organisations. And one of the things that she said that innovative organisations does well is they're really good to both affirm the individual and the group. Because it's the individuals that bring the raw materials of innovation but it's only the collective effort that will lead to, to innovation in itself. So we need to kind of balance both of those. It's very, very challenging and tricky. So there's two ways that we need to think about starting with the individual in terms of self-awareness. Um, it's really important that every individual in the team, first of all, knows how they like to work. This has become more important again um, because, ironically, the demands of collaboration are taking demands on our time and the support collaborative overload, which was a bit of a backlash against collaboration, found that 80% um, of the time that we work is actually spent responding to emails in meetings and on the phone. So it's actually this, this, this need for collaboration is actually preventing us from getting work done. So each individual on the team needs to know how they best get their work done. When are they most creative and productive? What are their ideal days? When are the best times for them to work? And once you've got that knowledge, you bring that together in the team and you kind of negotiate and find a way where it's possible for everybody to do their best work. Oh, so deep work. So deep work is a concept that was developed by Cal Newport. He wrote a book on it re very recently. And he talks about this idea that, you know, in today's workplace, it's very difficult for us to snatch long, uninterrupted stretches of focused time. And that's actually what's going to differentiate us in the future. So we've got these kind of demands of collaboration. We need to work together. But yet, in order to develop our own skills and to advance professionally, we need to make sure that we have time to master our own, ta our own talents. Um, and that's what he calls deep work. So each individual needs to be aware of when they can get into deep work, when they can get into that flow, when they can be their most creative and productive so it starts with how they like to work, um, but then also just as important as that, sometimes not even more important, is how they work with others. So it's not just enough to bring your talents to a, 
to your team, but having that kind of T-shape, that ability to not only have your own expertise, but also work with disciplines um, across multiple disciplines, um, different skill sets, different people with different knowledge and learn from them. Understand what you bring to a team, but also what they bring to a team and empathise with the different challenges that people face as well. So this ability to be T-shaped, this emotional intelligence, as well as your own skills, is important in, in working in a team. Another factor of, of teams um, that I've definitely seen in my work is that everybody on the team is able to see the bigger picture. And again, within the, sort of the, the knowledge work that we do, it's not just enough to have a reward at the end, a financial reward. In fact, that's not what motivates people like us. We are more in, in motivated by intrinsic rewards. Um, this is something that Dan Pink explored in his book, Pink, and he identified that three factors that are really important for motivating knowledge workers, people in teams, were autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy, the ability to work in the way that works for you. Mastery, the ability to develop your skills and get better at what you do. And this one, purpose, the deep motivation and engagement that people have when they feel they're working towards something much bigger than themselves. For me, this works really well when a project is kicking off or a discussion is kicking off and everybody in the team is in that room together, has the opportunity to input, has the opportunity to have a say. And they are able to see the bigger picture of their work. They're able to see what it is that everyone's working towards beyond just their individual contribution. Teams have good communication. I mean, this kind of makes sense. A lot of these things seem quite basic in, um, when, I'm, when I'm saying it, but they're actually hard to implement. So there's lots of research that backs up the, the, how a team communicates um, and the way they communicate has actually more impact than actually the content of the way they communicate. So MIT Human Dynamics Lab, they decided to explore what made the most successful teams and they explored that by giving teams wearable devices, not monitoring what they were saying, but actually giving them wearable devices to monitor the, um, the pattern of communication across the teams. And they found that the teams that were most successful were in frequent communication. Um, there was equal contributions amongst the teams. So they were talking and listening in equal measure. Um, there was informal communication as well. So it wasn't just work, work, work. They were also um, socialising and having chats. Um, and the conversation was dynamic. So they looked at the level of the conversation and it was quite passionate. Um, so there was these three things, energy, um, engagement and exploration. Another thing was that the team members were going outside of their team and bringing information and ideas back into the team as well. So this level of communication, nothing to do with what was communicated and everything to do with how they communicated. Quick quiz. So I'm going to ask you a question, um, which is what is the most, what do you think is the most important lever in motivating individuals. So I'm going to tell you what the four are, and then I'm going to ask you to, to vote on which one you think it is. So first one is recognition. Second one is progress. Third one, tangible incentives. Fourth one, clear work goals. So who thinks that the most important lever in motivating individuals is recognition? Okay, a few there. Who thinks it's progress? Okay, a few more. Tangible incentives, couple, and clear work goals. Okay, so I think clear work goals is the winner. Um, according to research from Theresa Amabile and Stephen Kramer, it's actually progress. And most managers don't get that. In fact, no managers, when they interviewed them, no managers 
saw that their role was um, in helping their teams to make progress. So, in, so those, that, what they did was they, in terms of their research, they interviewed 238 knowledge workers and they asked them all to make a diary entry at the end of the day. And they ended up with 12,000 diary entries um, and they scaled to all of these diary entries and basically all they did was ask, how are you feeling today and what happened? At the end of this day, what, what's, your, what's your emotion and what happened? And the thing that all of those t individual diary entries had in common, the majority, was that those individuals were able to make a little bit of progress forward each day. Didn't, didn't have to be a big bit of progress, it was just a very, very small win moving forward. So it kind of changes our idea of what a manager is meant to do and what a leader is meant to do. A leader is not there to kind of make decisions for the team, but actually to clear the way so that they can move forward more smoothly. Can't talk about high-performing teams without talking about Google's Project Aristotle. Does anyone know about Google's Project Aristotle? Okay, so there's a few. So um, a couple of years ago, Google decided that they wanted to identify what made their most successful teams within their companies, within their company. Um, and they, again, studied all of their teams and they thought that they would come up with things like where those individuals went to school and the um, IQ of the individuals and perhaps their career history. And none of that came up at all. In fact, they found five things. The impact of work, so individuals knowing that the work they were doing would have an impact. Um, and knowing the meaning of that work as well, again, sort of relating to purpose. Structure and clarity around what they were doing. So they knew what they were doing. They knew why they were working with other people and they, they had clarity on roles. And they also knew that they could depend on each other as well to get work done. But at the top of the list, the most, the most important factor by far was this idea of psychological safety. That everybody in the team felt safe enough to take risks be vulnerable and make mistakes in front of their team members. So this is Google, where you'd think that engineering talent is one of the most important things. It had nothing to do with their most successful teams and everything to do with how the team worked together. So what makes a successful team? High-performing teams discuss how they will work together. The research that I've showed you shows that it's less about who is in the team and even what they're working on and what they're talking about and everything to do with how they work together. So this is a question that came to me at the end of a talk that I did last week, a very similar talk that I did last week. I'm going to put it out to you. I'm not going to answer it. I'm going to put it out to you to think about. But what would you do if a non-team player has more than 10 times the results compared to the rest of the team combined? which probably isn't uncommon in technology companies. So a question for you to think about. Now, there's lots of ways in which we can build high-performing teams. Um, one of the ways that I've seen in the work that I do make the most impact, which sounds bizarre, but it really makes a massive impact, is with meetings. <coughs> now, I think we can agree within companies that we're probably having too many meetings, and we're bored of them. This is just one stat that exists in showing the um, productivity of meetings globally. Um, and there's probably many more out there which show that meetings waste time, there's too many of them. When we're in meetings, we're not engaged, people are on their phone, we don't have productive discussions. You know, we, meetings are definitely broken. Um, and some companies go, 
down the route of saying, right, OK, meetings are broken, let's not have any meetings. It's meetings that are a problem. But if we're working in teams, if we need to work together to get work done in these cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary multi teams of um, individuals with expertise, specific expertise, we have to meet. There's no way around it. So it's not about getting rid of meetings. It's about making those meetings better. Uh, Bessos, Jeff Bessos, is a bit obsessive with the way that he runs his meetings. He's got some little kind of techniques that he uses because, again, he sees meetings as a really key part to his organisational culture and the success of um, the way the organisation works. Um, so we might have heard of his two pizza teams, which is where... Um, there's a kind of principle within Amazon that if a team is too big to be fed by two pizzas, then it's too large because they're very interested in kind of having very small um, focused teams that work together. But Amazon's silent starts is, and for the executive teams particularly, and what happens is at the beginning of executive meetings, everybody um, has half an hour to just read through the memos in silence. And that's what happens at the beginning of the meeting. So everyone's just sitting around the table for 30 minutes in silence. And it's just a way of getting everyone up to speed because they know that when you send around those documents in advance, no one's going to read them. Um, no one's up to speed. Everyone comes unprepared. So that moment in the meeting is a really important time for everyone to get on the same page, so to speak. The other thing that he does, which I think is great, is um, in order to energise his meetings and to keep people on their toes, um, they have a big wheel. Um, because the meet, I think the meetings were getting too large and um, they were getting really unproductive and very unwieldy. So um, Amazon decided, decided that they were going to incorporate a big wheel and they were going to give people numbers and they were going to select numbers randomly so that when your number came up, that was your turn to present. So it kept people on their toes, but also kept the meetings quite fast moving and kept the productivity going as well. One of the things that I see with the work that I do, is that there's a massive opportunity to change our meetings. Um, meetings, you can tell a lot by an organisation's or company's culture, by what happens in the meetings. Are people getting involved? Are they engaged? Who's dominating the conversation? And actually, if someone has a bad experience in a meeting, then you know, they might be a bit fed up uh, in the short term. But if they keep on having that experience over a period of time, then it leads to a lot of disengagement generally in the workplace, leading to lower productivity, leading to lower happiness. So there's a lot that we can do in meetings to make a difference. And I say we can take inspiration from workshops. This is the kind of work that I do. I say, I'm, you know, my company is about helping teams work better together. And a lot of the work that I do takes place through the format of workshops, going in, designing and running strategy sessions and brainstorming sessions and project kickoffs so that my clients can make sure that in that time that they're together, they have a very focused and productive time. Facilitation, a massive part of this, um, not just in the meetings that you run, um, but also in the way that you will lead the discussions that you have when you're designing new ways of working with your team, but generally also as a leadership approach. Because, you know, as our role now as leaders, when we've got all of these talented individuals, is not to tell them what to do, but actually to create an environment where they're able to thrive and do their best work together. A bit of research, again, um, Paul Paulus, Abraham Carmeli, um, identified this phrase, ideational facilitational, facilitation leadership. They studied executives across a range of companies and realised that, again, the success of companies had something to do with this skill, this one skill that CEOs had. 
And it's leadership behaviour that cultivates openness, exchange of ideas and effective discussion for creative thinking. So these leaders were able to facilitate an interesting, productive, useful discussion amongst their leaders, which led to innovation. That skill, very specific in leading to a successful company. And it brings us back to the progress principle as well. You know, that factor of people feeling most engaged um, and happy at work was that they were able to make a small bit of progress, just a little bit of progress, just one step forward, which again changes the way that we think about our role as managers. Our role is to clear the way, to facilitate, to make things easier, to clear the barriers so that people can get on and do their best work. Linda Hill, I mentioned earlier, Collective Genius, her book all about um, innovative organisations. You know, she says this thing about leaders. Leaders is not there to um, define, the, to, to make decisions. Their role is to set the stage for people to do their best work, not to perform on it themselves. So how do I set the stage for innovation to happen? Question for leaders to ask themselves. I've written a book. A Pocket Guide to Effective Workshops. So in the book, I kind of explore the difference between meetings and workshops. Now, so I talk about a typical meeting, and a typical meeting when I kind of say, you know, the, the usual meeting that we hold, um, that's unproductive, it's not useful, um, it's, it feels like a waste of time, versus a workshop that's been facilitated brilliantly. These are some of the things that I say. You know, a meeting, a typical meeting, when we think of a meeting in our head, the individuals go there to present content. Whereas a workshop, it's about developing content together. You're there to explore unknowns. Typical meeting, you know, often people go there to kind of persuade of the right answer. They've got an argument to make. Whereas in a workshop, when a workshop is facilitated well, it's all about exploring different options um, and possibilities together. Typical meeting, people are just sitting there on their phone. They're quite passive. Um, but with a workshop, you're getting your engaged participants, people involved, engaged in the discussion. There's power dynamics, typical meeting, you know, some people dominating. But in a workshop, you strive for equal contributions. The, the, the aim is to get everyone involved um, and involved in the discussion. And I see workshops as much more dynamic, much more active than a typical meeting. Um, but why can't we achieve some of these in our meetings? Why can't we, we get that? Because that's actually what we want to achieve for great collaboration, for great teams working. So why don't we take some inspiration from our workshops and inject them into our meetings? Um, when workshops are facilitated well, these are some of the things that they should feel. These are some of the things that they should experience. Engagement and connection. Um, autonomy. They feel that they've had the freedom to, to, to develop ideas in their own way. And they've got a clear sense of purpose. They know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. They're making the progress. And they're working together as a team to make that happen. So again, why can't we go for that in meetings? But generally, when you look at that list, that's what we want to achieve in the workplace as well, to achieve a high-performing team. So it makes sense that we take some of that inspiration from our workshops and inject them not only into our meetings, but into the rest of the organisation. I call this workshop culture, whereby we've looked at... Um, what we can do in helping the people have productive discussions, engaging discussions, and actually taking inspiration from that and injecting that into different parts of the culture. So it starts off with a one-off event, you know, workshops, a one-day strategy session, an off-site, a brainstorming session. You know, you might kind of see that as a finite event in itself. And they can be, they can be great in themselves, um, and they, you can make a lot of progress. But where I really see the impact made with teams is when they start to run multiple workshops over a period of time. 
because what happens, you start to get that collaboration, that engagement, um, that um, sort of that dynamic feeling, the collaboration, the creativity, which then starts to spill out into the rest of the culture. You know, the, the, the conversations, the openness, the transparency that happens in the workshop doesn't just stay in the room. It also it spreads out into the rest of the, the organisation as well. So a few tips, a few very, very practical tips to make your meetings better and to take inspiration from workshops. The first one is choosing the right format for the purpose. There's so many different types of meetings that we can have. I've mentioned a few. Strategy session, brainstorming, we might have an update meeting, a stand-up, a retrospective. Um, but when we call a meeting, we just say, right, let's have a meeting, let's get around the room, get, 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 into a get, in a table, get around a table in a room, um, and let's just see what happens. Actually, having that kind of intentional design to the way you meet and what you're meeting for can have a massive impact to changing the way that people work together. Making sure that you're ensuring equal contributions. Now, in a meeting, there's so many reasons why people don't speak up or why they feel prevented to speak up. Um, it may be because they're an introvert um, and extroverts are naturally able to speak up in front of people. It may be because there's senior people in the room as well. It may be because they don't feel safe um, to speak up. There's not that psychological safety. But if you've done your work to get talented individuals together and you've got yourself a diverse team, then why don't you want to hear from all of those voices in the room? It makes a massive difference. It's not just about making the space for diversity, as Tom was talking about earlier, but also making sure that those spaces are inclusive and people are able to speak up and get their views heard when there's an opportunity for them to do so. A couple of very specific tips to do that. Um, Checking rounds. So a check-in round is um, a, a, a tiny intervention which can make a massive impact. At the beginning of a meeting, at the beginning of a workshop, you ask people a question, a personal question. You know, how are you? What did you do this weekend? What are you working on? What's taking, your, what's taking up the most um, energy for you? What's taking up your, your, your headspace? And you go around the table and you ask people. You'd be surprised how much that opens up for a conversation amongst the team. Um, so... Braden Coetz is uh, an ex-Google Ventures, actually. He started his own, his own company called Range Labs. And Range Labs develops technology, again, to help teams work together. And he wrote recently how he saw a massive impact in the performance of teams just by introducing this check-in round. So the more, more honest, he says, the more honest we are with each other, the better we work together. And that's why check-in rounds are one of the best ways to get higher output, i.e. performance, from your team. Really tiny intervention, takes five minutes, um, which can have a massive impact on the way that your team works together to lead to high performance. Power of a post-it note. I mean, this is kind of, you know, you think of post-it notes synonymous with workshops. Um, and, you know, they kind of can be a bit overused, but really post-it notes can have a massive impact, again, on encouraging people to get involved. So one of the tricks that I do when I know that there's going to be a problem with people getting involved in a discussion, give everyone a stack of post-it notes, ask a question, give them two minutes to write down their response individually before sharing and before having a conversation. And again, it's just level the play playing field because it means that the people that would speak up naturally are forced to stay silent for a little bit. And the introverts in the room, who sometimes find it difficult to speak up in front of people and maybe want a little bit more time to think before they speak, had that opportunity to do so. Related to that, 
you want to start encouraging productive conflict as well. Again, if you've got all of these individuals together with diverse expertise um, and individually talented in their own right, then you want to make sure, you don't want them to agree all the time. You want to make sure that there's an opportunity for them to challenge each other. Because again, that's where innovation comes from. I mean, it's really important to encourage productive conflict to avoid what we call groupthink. Groupthink is when people agree for the sake of not causing conflict, for the sake of not speaking up or causing a, a problem amongst the team or the way that the team's working together. But productive conflict is super important for combating that. So many reasons why groupthink might happen. Um, it may be because, again, there's a dominant member of the group, um, a senior me member of staff might speak first. Um, it may be because uh, there's, um, there's not a lot of psychological safety in the group as well. But making those opportunities for productive conflict, again, vital for high performance. One of the ways to do this is when you're having your discussions is to separate out what we call divergent thinking and convergent thinking. Divergent thinking is when we're generating ideas and coming up with lots and lots of possibilities. And in that space, you want to not encourage critique. You want to make sure that people feel comfortable with coming up with you know, crazy ideas and exploring. But in order to move forward with any kind of discussion or any kind of project, you need to move into critique at some point. So making the space for it and making sure that they're separated out, make sure that they don't interfere with each other. They're very difficult to do at the same time. Divergent thinking, if you try and introduce convergent thinking, then you shut down ideas too early. Convergent thinking, if you're still trying to kind of come to a, discussion, uh, a conclusion or make a decision and people are generating lots and lots of ideas, then it makes you go around in discussion loops. So you want to kind of separate out those two different types of thinking, divergent thinking and convergent thinking. And what happens is that when you're starting to run your, your work, your, your sessions and your meetings more like this, um, your role might change as a leader or there may be someone in the, in the team that needs to take on the role of facilitator. And the things that they're doing is they're asking good questions because the role of a facilitator is not there to um, tell people to input into the discussion or give people the answers. It's, they're there to draw the best answers and ideas out of everybody in the team. So they'll ask good questions. Um, and if, you're, if they, they've done a good job asking good questions, then they're going to get lots of responses, especially if that environment is safe for people to, to, to bring up their thoughts. So they also need to be good at listening and just listening, um, which is very, very difficult to do, listening to those responses. And if you get lots and lots of responses because you've enabled uh, you know, the productive conflict and you've enabled that um, equal contributions, then there's going to be a lot of ideas and chaos that comes back. So being able to deal with that uncertainty and all of those responses and those answers, um, really vital. And then finally, you'll move into kind of synthesising mode. So this cycle is something that leaders will go through, not only in meetings, not only in workshops, but generally in their work, if they're trying to um, encourage high-performing teams and input from everybody and encouraging everyone to do their best work. She going to... Actually, one of, the, um, one of the workshops that I do with my, my teams, this is sort of a workshop that, has, 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 um, that I've run time and time again with teams to actually start off the discussion. I call it a big picture thinking session. And it's really one way to kind of get this discussion going. Um, and the idea of it is sort of sitting down with your team and trying to, again, gather those views so that you can start to plan the way forward. And you'll look back, you'll look outside, 
um, and you'll look forward. So you'll ask questions which encourage people to kind of review where they were, bring influences from outside, and then also start to plan and generate ideas for where you can go in the future. Six sections, um, review, how did we perform? Um, what did we do in the past year, six months? Did we meet our targets, did we meet our goals? Um, what did we learn from that? Um, thinking about you know, inspirations, influences from outside, what's going on that's interesting that we can bring into the work that we do. And if there were no boundaries, if there was no, um, you know, no, no restrictions on time, resource or money, what would you like to do? So again, starting to generate those ideas of what's possible. Um, generating <coughs> ideas around what you could do and then actually deciding what you're going to move forward with. This is a sort of very short workshop, can be run in an hour, could be take, you could take a whole, half day, a whole day to run it, but it starts to kind of encourage that conversation to bring in the kind of collaboration and creativity from your team. And then you move into follow-up and next steps. So one of the things, again, that I see with my clients is that it's, um, you know, the workshop is one thing, but also what happens after the meeting or after the workshop is just as important and making sure that the actions are taken forward and there's a momentum and almost a rhythm to the way that you work. This is where we move into team habits, routines and rituals. So, you know, we're, we're not just looking at the way that we work together, but also starting to design new methods for, for building high performance. This is where we bring in the design approach, as I mentioned. So thinking about the individual jazz team, um, you know, starting with the individual, thinking about how do people do their best work? How do they work well together? And using that information and that knowledge to actually create new ways of working with your team and innovating around that as well, innovating in the way that you work so that you can innovate the work that you do. We've looked at ways that you can innovate in your meetings. I looked at a couple of um, examples from, from Jeff Bessos. And there's also the opportunity to share information as well. How do you share information as a team? A couple of examples. Intercom, um, they have a massive culture of reflection in their company. So they look at reflection at the individual level, the team level, and the company level. And they've instilled this into their culture um, so deeply that it's had a massive impact on their growth. And they kind of create a rhythm to how they collect that reflection as well. There's a cycle to it. Um, Etsy, I don't know if you've heard of this one, which is kind of a bit of a controversial one. But Etsy, the team of engineers, have a habit and a ritual almost of um, sharing the mistakes that they make. So when an engineer makes a massive mistake, um, they don't try to hide it. They actually share it across their company. And the whole reason they do that is because they don't want people to make the same mistake. Um, makes sense, but you have to have a massive culture of psychological safety, as we spoke at before, to ensure that people are able to, to speak up and do that. Informal conversations, so going back to the MIT research, um, engaging in infrequent, informal <coughs> communication, super important to um, a high-performing team and a successful team. Uh, Sweden, really good at this. They're kind of ahead in many things, um, but they have something called FICA, whereby they um, stop uh, twice a day, I think it's around 9am 9, 9 and 3pm, and they just have coffee and cake together, coffee and pastries, that's what FICA means, coffee and pastries, so that they have an informal chats and conversations away from work. But the whole point is that they get away from their work, they engage in that informal um, conversation so that they can get to know each other and build that psychological safety and trust. 
And then it's not just about working together, how you work together, but also how you work individually. I mean, I spoke about deep work and how it's really important for individuals to know how they work best and also carve out that time for individual working so that they can master what they do and just have that time to think. So, um, you know, we spoke about meetings, actually, habits, building team habits and building routines is just as much about what you, what you don't do as much as what you create. And Asana, the, the product of the company that I spoke to you about earlier, the ones that see culture as a product, they realised that collaboration was starting to kind of overtake um, the way that they were working together. It was kind of having an impact on productivity. So they decided to bring in this principle called No Meeting Wednesdays, where they, every Wednesday, they um, advised and gave this principle that um, you, there would be no informal meetings on a Wednesday um, and everyone would clear their diary and that day was a day that everyone was able to engage in deep work, they were able to get their concentrated work done. Now it wasn't enforced and if there was kind of an urgent external meeting then, the, then the, the, the workers at Asana could go for that but the idea was that Wednesdays were reserved for deep work and focused work. Another one which I love is Dropboxes are meeting Geddon. So they decided that their meetings were just completely overtaking their calendars, really having an impact to it on their productivity. So one day they just decided to delete all recurring meetings um, and make sure that there were no recurring meetings that happened over two weeks. Um, and it was a bit of a struggle for the workers, but eventually they, they, they realised that every meeting that they called, they would think more specifically and more intentionally about whether that meeting was needed. So, again, building habits, not just about building habits, but also reviewing the habits and the routines that you have that might not be serving their purpose anymore and redesigning them to make sure that they work. And there's also stuff you can do about physical space as well. Can you um, use your physical space to encourage collaborative behaviours? You know, this is something that Apple has been, become very well known for, designing um, their offices so that people have to meet on their way to the toilet to make way for that spontaneous conversation. Um, is there something that you can do in your office that um, makes the work that you do more transparent, shows the creativity of everybody, encourages people to have those informal conversations? And I've given you loads and loads of examples there, but the whole point is, is you don't copy these models. Uh, you don't try to replicate <coughs> things, because as I mentioned, you know, every team is individual. Every team is made up of a group of people that have their own ways of working, their own expertise. You bring that together in a team that forms their, its own team culture, and then you've got the context of the project or the work that they're working on, creates its own dynamics. So take inspiration from them, but don't <coughs> copy them. And the way that you would design, so just a reminder of Asana culture as a product, but the way that you would design it is that you, you look at designing team habits, routines and rituals as a creative task. So thinking back to Asana viewing their culture as a product, in the same way that you design your products for your users and your customers, you're designing your ways of working for your team. You're thinking about the user experience, you're thinking about the user journey. Where are all the touch points and where we work together? How can we optimise those points of collaboration to enable us all to do our best work, to thrive in, our, in, in the work that we're doing. And you're experimenting as well. You know, this isn't something that you set in stone. It's something that you kind of need to have a flexible approach to. So how do you change behaviour? One step at a time. You start small. You know, when you're trying to develop your own habits, think about the own habits the, 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 when you're trying to change your own behaviour, perhaps going to the gym more, drinking more water. <laughs> Um, you know, if you try to set yourself a task that's too big, 
uh, then you're going to fail. But if you start small with tiny, tiny little steps that don't threaten anyone, but are going to have a massive impact, so starting with your meetings, for example, or a small aspect of your meeting, that's the way to, to get this behaviour change um, rolling. So you design your habits, you know, it's a cyclical process, you design your habits, um, then you need to test them, you know, this is experimental, you don't know that it's going to work. In the same way that you test your products with your users, you're testing these ways of working with your team as well, testing what works, you're reviewing it, um, and then you're iterating on it as well, you're kind of figuring out what works, um, capturing that information and then changing it as, as you go along. And it's a cyclical process, as I said at the beginning, teams are changing Constantly, we're working in more dynamic teams. Um, we're ca calling our teams more, you know, flexible, autonomous. That's the same way that we need to kind of approach the way that we work together as well. So, question two, you know, what habits do you need to make or break to build your high-performing team? Just a quick summary of what I've discussed. You know, teamwork is changing, and with that, our attitude towards teamwork must change as well. Um, and what that takes is having a design mindset, taking a design approach and a facilitative approach to the way that we change behaviour and the way that we work together. You can start with your meetings. Massive impact can be made through your meetings. Meetings really do inform the culture of your company and your organisation. <laughs> and think about how you might build what I call a workshop culture as well. How do you move towards making your culture more collaborative by taking inspiration from the way that you meet more collaboratively? creating better team habits. So just to finish, you know, everything that I've spoken about is nothing to do with the work that you do. It's all about talking about how you work together. High-performing teams discuss constantly the way that they work together. And it se seems so um, simple, but it's very difficult to implement in practice. But to start it off, you just need to start with a conversation. Thank you very much. Did you know Business of Software are now offering online deep dive masterclasses, all led by industry leaders on topics you have told us you are interested in? There is a great lineup of subject focused masterclasses split over two sessions to help you do what you want to do better, better. The first class is coming up next week and features Radhika Dutt looking at radical product thinking. Visit businessofsoftware.org slash masterclasses for more info. Fantastic, you know the routine, stick your oh, Bridget, there you go. Orange. <laughs> Thanks very much, Alison, I really enjoyed that. Um, and lots of good reminders, I'm over here. Um, we're a remote company, and so we get asked all the time, how do we get work done uh, when we're all spread over different time zones and um, Slack and so on and so forth. So I just wondered what, what experience you've got um, applying some of that uh, thought process to remote teams? So my experience with remote teams is that um, teams that are in place, um, that work in the same space, have to design the way they work, but remote teams have to be even more intentional about that. Um, so having more conversations, making more effort to, um, to, to stay in communication, probably sort of over-communicating um, and 
over meeting almost um, having those making space for those informal discussions because again remote teams haven't got the opportunity to bump into each other as they go into the toilet so actually making space in the calendar for times when you're just getting on to have those informal chit chats those two things two things that I would say are key to an effective team is communication so being intentional about that and building that culture of trust and psychological safety and particularly with even more with the remote team. So what are the things that you can do to encourage your team members to build trust and trust each other? Uh, hi, I'd like to expand on that question actually with remote teams. Uh, Slack was mentioned. What do you think about chat communications? Because over a few years we went from everyone loving Slack to everyone hating Slack and snoozing all the notification possible. So what is, in your opinion, the right balance between Synchronous and asynchronous communication, is it better in Asana, for example, versus Slack, and what is the right balance? So, could you wave? I couldn't see where you... Oh, you're there. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, for me, I, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with tools and Slack as well, and I think the, the challenge for me with tools is that often tools are created and then they're imposed onto a team and, said, and the team is like, right, now you've got to work in this way. Um, my preference when I'm working with teams, as I say, is to start from where the team is, um, how they like to work, what do they need to get done together, and then finding the right tools that work for that team. Um, so it may not be Slack. I mean, it may be something as Google Docs. It may be, actually, email works best for us because that's what we need. Um, it may be that every now and again you need to get onto a, a conference call, but actually, as I say, sort of st standing back, looking at what you need to get done, who is on the team, what are the touch points, Where do you, what do you need to do together, where do you need to meet, what types of conversations do you need to have, and then bringing the tool that works, works for, for, that, for that team specifically. Yeah, hi, Anne. Um, Etsy's culture of sharing failures just mm. reminded me of something, and I think it's worth sharing with everybody. There's a thing called a failure swap shop or a failure workshop. And the basic idea is um, that you get a bunch of people into a room, um, and then you go around the room, and everybody stands up and says, hello, my name is X, and I failed. And then everybody cheers, and then you just share everything that happened. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, and you learn an immense amount from it. That's all. Thank you. Yeah, Benedict from Speechmatics again. Um, what are some of the red lines that you would draw and say you cannot cross those before getting rid of people in, in your concept? Mm. <laughs> Could you give me a bit more context? <laughs> so, I mean, you're talking about a lot of collabor collaborative work, for example, mm. and so everyone is obviously diff different, but this whole concept only works if the team ultimately performs. So how have you got the, the flip side of some of the, the, the concepts that you outlined and say, if you hit those, that's, if you're portraying those types of behaviours, you're out. You're not going to be part of this team. Mm. Sorry. And what are they? What are they? Um, well, top one, being an asshole, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I would, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for me, the, I sort of go back to that question that I put out to you, the 10 times performer that's not a team player. Um, you know, that 10 times performer might give you results in the short term, but when that 10 times performer goes on to their next role and leaves, you've got a team that you've got to fix because they've got low morale. Um, something that I didn't mention in my talk was the idea of a, you know, collaboration being a skill and teams can get better at working together. 
So for me, I'm much more the school of spending time encouraging collaboration rather than catering to kind of A players that don't work well in a team. So that would be my kind of red line. Um, but there's also, you know, working... The team need to work out the ways of working together themselves. They need to be involved in that design process. And as part of that design process, you can ask the team, well, what behaviour do we need to exhibit in order to work well together? You get the team to create the norms themselves. Um, and then when somebody acts out, then you've got your kind of team charter. And it's like, well, hold on, we all agreed to this. We all agreed that we would do this or we wouldn't do this. What's, what's going on? It's much better to kind of work with the team to, you know, everyone knows what good collaboration and bad collaboration looks like if you, you ask them. Just have a conversation about it and then it's there in front of you. Gareth? Hi, Hi yeah. Um, really enjoyed your talk and Thank so you. much content in there. It was like um, amazing. Um, you didn't mention psychometrics. And, I didn't. And, and I'm curious whether that was for deliberate reasons, because they are controversial, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't deliberate. Sometimes I do. Um, I have got... Uh, I think that um, psychometric testing is useful to a point. Um, it's useful to the point in creating self-awareness and starting to help people to understand that people work in different ways. Um, where I don't find it helpful is where people use it as an excuse to be a bit crappy towards other people. So, you know, the Myers-Briggs, for example, I, I think I'm an INTJ and I'm meant to be very, very difficult. So, you know, I'm an INTJ, I'm meant to be difficult. You've got to deal with it. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. So I think that they're good to a point in helping people to show that there's a variety and diverse ways of working on a team. Um, but using that to pigeonhole people, I find not useful. Um, I was wondering if you have any ideas about how to deal with noise between teams. Mm. Yeah, as in, you know, open in, plan spaces that are okay. very noisy. Uh, again, could you give me some context? So, are you working? Is it your company? Is it a company? Yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah, physical dealing with the physical space mm. challenges. If you have lots of teams packed into a large open plan space, yeah. um, you know, we have teams that complain about noise, and we're looking at various options to deal with it. I was curious if you have any examples yeah, of where that's been solved. Yeah, so um, my, my thoughts is working with the team and figuring out what they need. You know, for some people, um, you know, there's very differences in the way that people work. So very kind of classic extrovert, introverts. Extroverts like the sound. They kind of like to be in that social environment. Um, introverts need that quiet. Uh, it may be worth speaking to individuals on your team and saying, OK, what, where do you, what do you need in order to do your best work? And start to kind of create ways around that, rather than, again, imposing kind of ways of working on them. Have conversations with them. Sometimes it might be that somebody needs to just get out of the office for an hour and go to the local cafe and have a chat. Um, sometimes it may be that... <coughs> You know, there's a, a big group of people that need to do unfocused um, focused work but be in the same vicinity, so maybe you need to develop an area in your office that is for quiet work. Um, maybe you have norms like, you know, when we put headphones on, we're not to be interrupted. That's kind of like a little code for let's, you know, work in silence. There's, there's lots of different ways, but I, I think it starts with a conversation. It starts with talking to your team about what they want and what would work for them. How do you do, how do, you do your best work? would be the question to ask. Thanks. Hi. Uh, what do you think? Can one person effectively work in more than one team at the same time? Um, yes. I mean, it happens. 
Um, yes, but that individual has to be extremely self-aware of their own productivity. They, they really need this kind of time management, isn't it? It's managing yourself. Um, so if you're working on multiple projects, then you need to be able to manage that balance across those projects and manage the time that you allocate to them. So again, it goes back to, you know, all of this starts with self-awareness, <coughs> understanding how you do your best work, understanding, you know, am I an early bird? Um, do I get my kind of best chunk of work done in the morning? Am I, uh, you know, a, a, a night owl? Do I work better later? Do I work in the vicinity of people? Do I need to go off? Um, and having that awareness of yourself is what will enable people to work across multiple teams. It's challenging. It's a challenge, but it's something that we're all having to face now. Hi there. Um, I really like the comment you made about the two pizza team size, oh. sort of keeping them small so the relationships work. Mm. Um, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts around the collaboration between teams. Mm. Again, could you give me a bit more context? So keep the team small, you're going to end up with more teams, mm. teams need to work together. Mm. That's a whole different level of collaboration. Does that yeah. make sense? For me, the same rules apply. You know, you've got a team which has its own identity. Um, that will, you know, is created their own ways of working. You've got another team that has its own identity. In order for those teams to work together, it starts with a conversation. How are we working? What do we need to do? It starts with both of those teams having an empathy and a respect for the other team and understanding what those, what each team brings and why they're working together. Where to start? Our team of fifteen or our office of one hundred? Sorry. Where to start the change? Our team of size like 15 or our office of size 100? From number two, that's where to start. Yeah, it's intentional, I would say. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.